The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are talking about hopeful monsters, a controversial theory in evolutionary biology that has led to research on the role of single mutations that drastically alter the body plan of organisms. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra. With me today is Olivier Riepel, Curator of Evolutionary Biology at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. Dr. Riepel, welcome to Science for the People. Welcome indeed. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this week's episode is all about hopeful monsters, but before we get into your research on this particular topic, I would like for you to explain what exactly is a hopeful monster. <laughs> That's not that easy to explain, but let me try. Uh, there used to be a geneticist, a German uh, geneticist, who uh, ended up in Berkeley, in California, where he uh, pursued most of his academic career. And it was him who coined that phrase, uh, hopeful monster. Uh, what that means is uh, he felt that there needed to be specific and special mechanisms of macroevolution which go beyond the Darwinian mechanisms of variation and natural selection. And the outcome of these macro mutations, as you would call them, or systemic mutations, would be hopeful monsters, different species, different body plans that hopefully would survive uh, in this world. Okay, so what exactly is this effect? What happens to these monsters that make them monsters, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, well, let's put it that, that way. Um, Goldschmidt coined that phrase and wrote a book about the, these hopeful monsters. He called it the material basis of evolution in 1940. Uh, today, of course, we are much more advanced in terms of knowledge and genetics, developmental biology, and so on. So Goldschmidt's work is mostly of historical interest today. And so the phrase hopeful monster and monstrousness of those mutations or of those offspring uh, need to be taken with a grain of salt. It, uh, it's not quite that monstrous anymore. But what it is, it's a discussion as to whether the Darwinian mechanisms of, of variation and natural selection can and do explain every evolutionary change that we observe in the world today. And there is some who think they do. There is some who think that you just have to let variation and natural selection work over long enough periods of time, and the result will be major evolutionary change. There is others, and today it's particularly developmental biologists that look at development from a genetic point of view, who argue that there is mechanisms of change which go beyond these Darwinian twin mechanisms of variation and natural selection, who argue that these macroevolutionary changes at the origin of birds, the origin of turtles, that these changes cannot be explained by letting just variation and natural selection in a Darwinian sense play out over long periods of time. What they think is that there is uh, changes in early development, early embryonic development, that can trigger major uh, transformations of body plans. And the issue then still remains, of course, that such uh, fundamental uh, changes in early developmental pathways uh, require the organism to still survive and become mm -hmm. reproductive. 
Okay, so from what I understand, one of the issues with this theory when it first was presented to the, to the scientific community was that um, scientists didn't believe that, you know, a hopeful monster would be able to find a mate to reproduce with since these individuals are so unique. So what that, do you think about that? Yeah, that is one of the black boxes that still is uh, being discussed in, in this research program, which today we call Evo Devo, Evolutionary Development developmental biology, and which is interested in the effects of mutations that affect early ontogenetic stages. A rewiring of the developmental program is what they're investigating, and this rewiring, the genetic rewiring of the, of the development program is what produces these profounder uh, morphological changes in evolution. Uh, how these changes become embedded in a reproducing population that is studied by population geneticists and ecologists like yourself, uh, that is still very much a matter of discussion, indeed. Okay, so can you explain the, the term hopeful and hopeful monsters? What is that referring to? Again, this is a, a Goldschmidt term that goes back to the 1930s and it's in his book, 1940. Uh, and again, we don't subscribe to Goldschmidt's original ideas anymore today. But what he felt was that, uh, you know, genes had been thought to have a particular gene as a particular effect and a particular structure, uh, the wing or the bristles or the eye in a fruit fly. And this was a very atomistic approach to genetics. It was one gene, one character. Mm -hmm. You change the gene, you change the character. And only a little bit at a time. This was a very atomistic approach to genetics. And coming from Germany, Goldschmidt had a more holistic approach to, uh, to uh, genetics. The chromosome to Goldschmidt wasn't just a thread on which the genes were aligned like, uh, like pearls are on a necklace. Mm -hmm. Instead, to him, the chromosome was a whole system, an integrated system. And you couldn't just change a little part of it and leave the whole rest unchanged otherwise. And so this is where he came in with his uh, systemic mutations. But these systemic mutations produced profound changes which needed to survive in this world. And he appealed in that context to a complex uh, theory of pre-adaptation. He thought that pre-adaptation channeled the embryonic development uh, and its changes uh, uh, to make it survive. And so the hopefulness of, of uh, these monsters' changes would be that the pre-adaptation had gone far enough for them to survive. And this is something we don't subscribe to anymore today. And why is that? Pre-adaptation as a whole is, is a very uh, uh, debated and controversial issue, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because it entails a notion of goal-directedness. It's mm -hmm. a sort of adaptation to something that comes in the future. And there is no natural mechanism that would explain such goal-directedness in evolution. But again, uh, in Goldschmidt's time, and uh, you know, 1940 in his book, he quotes a lot of paleontologists who at that time did believe in goal-directed evolution. This was the so-called uh, theories of also evolution. And uh, it's not something we uh, accept today any longer. But in that historical setting, Goldschmidt had a whole literature out of paleontology that sort of argued in favor of saltational change and goal-directedness of those saltational changes. So he felt he had the scientific justification for all of this theory that he was proposing, which today there is uh, its change. But we retain 
the nomenclature, this notion of hopeful monsters, just because it reminds us of Goldschmidt, and because he was mm -hmm. one of the first ones to argue that, or one of the more prominent ones, not the first one, but the prominent one amongst the geneticists, to argue that <clears throat> it is impossible to reduce every and all evolutionary change to the Darwinian twin mechanisms of variation and natural selection. Okay, so where do you think his idea of the hopeful monster came from? Um, how do you think it was inspired? It was inspired by his background. It was inspired by his holistic background, which was a strong, not the only one, but mm -hmm. one of the strong traditions in German biology that he came from. Uh, it was inspired by his opposition to this atomistic approach to genetics, by his more systemic uh, approach to genetics, uh, systems biology, or systems thinking was big at the time, was also prominently philosophically uh, argued uh, by von Gertelanffy, another German uh, philosopher, in this case, philosopher of biology. So he was rooted in a quite different tradition, and that inspired him to come up with these uh, macroevolutionary ideas. And uh, interestingly enough, you had a re uh, a, a rebirth of this uh, kind of macroevolutionary uh, thinking in the 1980s, most prominently uh, in Stephen Jay Gould. And at that time, Stephen Jay Gould enticed uh, uh, and motivated a, a translation, you know, of one of those paleontologists' books that had influenced Goldschmidt and Gould even wrote then an introduction to that book. So uh, there is a historical tradition here which is mm -hmm. worthwhile to remember. Okay. Well, the concept of the, the hopeful monster, like you've already mentioned, um, is controversial even today um, and has not been wholly accepted by the scientific community today. But it was even more controversial, very controversial, when it was first presented to the scientific community, um, you know, way back then. Uh, yes. So, uh, why do you think the scientific community was so quick to reject this idea of the hopeful monster when it first arose? Well, there are two two reasons for this. First is that, you know, many, well, if you look at, at, at uh, malformations, uh, you know, animals with two heads or two tails and so on, uh, so we know that most uh, big changes that happen early in development and lethal for the embryo, kill the embryo. Mm -hmm. So the chances of survival of these, at least in, 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 in earlier days, uh, were considered to be minimal, if not just simply non-existent. <clears throat> and the other thing is that um, there was no empirical evidence uh, for any such changes. Uh, the atomistic approach, the Morgan School with the fruit flies and so on, they could conduct experiments they could induce variation and mutation uh, by, you know, uh, raising the temperature in the breathing chambers of those flies or by bombarding them with x-rays or doing things like this and then study the effects. And those, uh, those were experiments that could be repeated. There was an empirical basis for those experiments. And they all pointed towards minor changes which add up over time under natural selection, as Darwin had written. Uh, Goldschmidt did not, was not able to provide these experimental uh, empirical, uh, this experimental and empirical foundation for his ideas of, of, of hopeful monsters. So this was just, uh, well, this is armchair genetics. This is just uh, wild theorizing. There is no experimental basis to this all, so we can't accept it. 
But today, of course, we have what is known the homeobox genes and, and, and how they change and what, and what they do in development. We can study them. There's whole hierarchies of these genes that get transcribed and certain patterns that guide embryonic development. So what was missing to Goldschmidt at the time, today we do have an empirical basis, which is researched by this uh, community that call themselves Evo Devo, the mm-hmm. evolutionary Evo and the biologists. Okay, so what are your thoughts on where this theory stands today within the scientific community? I mean, there is a whole group of the Eva Diva uh, scientists who um, can potentially conduct research on the idea of hopeful monsters, but it's not necessarily called hopeful monsters anymore, this concept. I mean, you refer to it as hopeful monsters, but not everyone else does. Um, So how has this idea changed over time? Well, uh, been refined, I guess. You know, I think there is still two two camps amongst contemporary uh, evolutionary biologists. The one camp is the camp of population geneticists, population biologists, people who study speciation uh, and so on, the origin of new species from populations, uh, people who study geographic variation in genetic terms uh, in populations and species. Uh, All of these studies is what is known as as microevolutionary studies. Classical Darwinian studies and variation, natural selection, uh, small changes adding up over periods of time. That's microevolution. And then there is evo-devo people who study the development uh, of organisms. How does a turtle shell evolve? How does an ichthyosaur fin evolve? Uh, and look at early ontogenetic changes, developmental biology, uh, also from a genetic point of view. And these are uh, macroevolutionary studies. And the big debate today is, is all evolutionary change reducible to microevolution over long periods of time, as a population geneticist would argue, or is it the case that there is a morphological evolution uh, of a kind that is different from microevolution and calls for different evolutionary mechanisms, such as changes in homeoproximate uh, genes and things like that? That is macromutation. So the evo-devo people would argue that the macroevolution is not reducible to microevolution. Uh, evolutionary, uh, you know, population geneticists, they would argue that uh, microevolution can explain all evolutionary change over time. What is still a stumbling block is to embed the results of, of uh, macroevolutionary study, of evo-devo study, in a context of population biology. This bridged still needs to be built. I'm still trying to wrap my head around what a hopeful monster is. So um, let me know if this is correct. So this concept refers to individual organisms that have undergone um, some form of mutation, maybe in one gene, maybe in multiple genes, um, that has caused a large effect in the phenology, um, um, in the phenotype, in the physical appearance of, or in a, a, maybe a physical trait, a characteristic yeah. of the individual that um, makes it very different from other, other individuals yeah. of its species that have not undergone the same types of mutations. And this particular individual 
um, potentially has um, a benefit because of its mutations that makes it um, more selected for. It's more fit compared to other individuals. It has a higher likelihood of surviving and reproducing um, yeah. and just being successful, successful individual. Yeah. So it, um, in theory, it's a monster because it's, it's mutated. You know, it's got this mutation that makes it very different. And it's hopeful because it could potentially be, be the beginning of a new species. Yeah. Is all of that correct? Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, yeah. Let, let me put it differently. A little okay. Bit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let us look at the monster that's not hopeful. Okay. You have a, you have a fruit fly, you have a, 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 a hox gene mutating, and instead of an antenna, a leg grows out of the place where normally an, an antenna would be located. That is a monster, mm-hmm. but not a hopeful one. Mm-hmm. But we, and, and such mutations were already known and Goldschmidt, in fact, even studied some of those. Uh, you know, and, um, so we know that there is these hox genes today. We have them, uh, located and we know that if they change, this can have big consequences. Now let's look at an example. For example, turtles with their shell. So a turtle looks quite distinct from any other tetrapod which is why it is so difficult to uh, pinpoint most closely related uh, organisms, why the origin of turtles is so disputed. Now you look at turtle embryos and you realize to build that shell, uh, you have to start modifying components in this embryo, the body wall, for example, in, in at very, very early developmental stages. Uh, unless you do that, you won't get a shell in the end. You can also look at the genes that work to make that shell possible. And what you see is that genes which otherwise are active to regulate link development in turtles all of a sudden <coughs> become re-employed at a different locus in the embryo, at a different time, doing different things and helping to build that shell. So you realize that you have to have a whole developmental program that is going to transform this embryo from very early stages on in order to build that shell and all that's required to make the embryo functional inside that shell or the organism. How do you explain that? How do you explain that through variation of sexually reproducing organisms uh, and natural selection or through the co-optation of genes into a new context, different place in the body doing different things early in development to build that shell. And an evil devil person will tell you, well, the latter is what we see empirically, what we see in the lab happening. And the question is, how did this evolve uh, over geological time? So you've mentioned turtles a couple times already. So why don't we get into your own research on hopeful monsters? Um, so you've studied turtles as an example of a hopeful monster. You even wrote, wrote a whole book about them. Um, so can you tell us a little more about your research? Yes, well, the, um, my, my research focuses on, on Triassic marine reptiles. These are reptiles that lived in the Triassic seas about 230 to 245, 50 million years ago. Uh, over the last 15 or so, 16 years, I've mostly worked in China that has an extremely rich uh, fossil record uh, of these Triassic marine reptiles. And my specialty is a particular group of those. It's a very diverse uh, radiation in the Mesozoic of marine reptiles, but I've studied uh, Sauropterygians in particular, uh, not the ichthyosaurs, but the Sauropterygians and, and uh, their relationships. 
And uh, when I first uh, did a global analysis of soil to origin relationships within reptiles in general, um, the turtles uh, switched from a position at the very bottom of the reptile tree of life into the crown, if you want to say so, to the, what's the top of the reptile tree of life. And this was a highly controversial issue and has remained so ever since. And it has spawned a large literature, both of paleontological anatomical content as well as uh, molecular systematics uh, to investigate the origin of turtles. Uh, Part of that story of the origin of turtles is try to compare them to other reptiles so that we can identify characteristics that they share with other reptiles uh, or don't share so that we can learn about the relationships within reptiles in general. And part of the characteristics of turtles is, of course, the turtle shell. And when I started to look into the literature of the turtle shell, I realized, oh my God, this is a hugely complex thing. How the hell did this evolve? And uh, and so I got into all this developmental uh, developmental literature. I didn't do these uh, developmental studies myself, at least mm. not the, the genetic components of them. I did studies on on bone formation in turtles, but not on the genetics of development in turtles. Uh, but I talk to these people who do these kinds of studies and, and the tur turtle shell has become uh, one of many, but one important example now through all this research of what we call an evolutionary innovation. How do you build something new that is new, that is not just a modification of something that's been present already in the ancestral condition, but something that is genuinely new? Variation in natural selection can only ex explain the variation of something that already exists and a transformation of that would already exist into something else through natural selection. An evolutionary novelty for evo-devo people is something that is genuinely new, that is not just a transformation of something that already existed. And a turtle shell has become an example of such an evolutionary innovation. So turtles do not always have shells, is what you're saying. Yes, so the ancestral condition has no shell, and the descendant condition does have a shell. That's an evolutionary novelty. And so uh, so I, I wrote an essay earlier already in 2001, I believe it was published on Turtles as Hopeful Monsters, and now there is this book. But the funny part of it is that precisely in China, amongst these marine reptiles that we were looking for, we did find uh, an ancestral turtle. A turtle that was a reproductive organism, adult, but that had an incomplete shell. And so what before the finding of this monster looked like a, like a, a hopeful monster, we now have an ancestral turtle, which is a little bit monstrous. It's a turtle on the half shell. It has, it has the plaster on the, the belly uh, armor, but it has only broadened ribs. It doesn't have the carapace yet. It is a little bit monstrous, but it is not, you know, it's not a monster in the sense of something impossible, but instead it is precisely a first step towards the development of a turtle shell. And so if you find a lucky fossil, that hopeful monster all of a sudden loses its monstrosity, if you want to mm -hmm. say. So how old was this specimen, this turtle that you found in China with the, you know, deformed, half-formed shell? It was about 240 to 35 million years old, something like this. I, 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 you know, this geological time, absolute time is mm -hmm. a bit of a problem. That's about the, uh, the I can pull up a, a time chart here. And, uh, 
and see what the yeah. So uh, I don't know, it was two hundred thirty. 30 million years old, something like that. So do you believe that the, the turtle shell, um, you know, could have evolved as, um, you know, a large-scale effect from mutation? Well, what we do see in the fossil record is that you do have, in the first instance, a broadening of ribs, you have a rearrangement of ribs, you have the development of a ventral body armor from ancestral structures, not difficult to explain anything is, is every, everything is quite simple so mm-hmm. far and now comes the carapace and this requires at least as we learn from embryos of modern turtle uh, these uh, changes to build a carapace require not just the broadening of the ribs but also different changes a folding of the body wall a rearrangement a reorientation of the ribs etc in a way that requires changes that happen early in development. And that was true already for that fossil from China with the incomplete shell. The ribs are already rearranged in certain ways, and what we call a carapace or disc had already developed in the embryo of that fossil. We can tell that from the orientation of the ribs. And the question is, yes, yeah, so uh, is that an evolutionary novelty uh, due to genetic and consequent morphological changes in early development? Or is this just simply the pop, you know, what population geneticists study variation natural selection? I believe it's the first, it's macroevolution that kicks in here that is uh, a little bit more complicated. But again, uh, whatever is subject to macroevolutionary changes is in the end required to be embedded in a reproductive population. Mm-hmm. And we still have to build that bridge. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so are there any other examples of innovation and in early development within the turtle or other species that you have studied? I have myself, uh, not too much. I did a little bit of, of limb, uh, limb-related research in relation to snakes, uh, loss of limb in snakes, and then having upper Cretaceous or mid-Cretaceous snake, fossil snakes with well-developed hind limbs, are these primitive? Have these redeveloped from rudiments? So I did a little bit on, uh, of limb work uh, in relation to my work on snake origins. I did a little bit of turtle stuff in relation to my work on turtle origins. But another very famous example, much discussed these days, of an evolutionary innovation is the evolution of jaws in mm-hmm. vertebrates. Uh, the ichthyosaurofin has for a long time been one of those things, but in this case you have no recourse to embryos because ichthyosaurs are all extinct. You only have the fossils. But they too have been an, a, an example uh, that's been used as, uh, for macroevolutionary events. Uh, the bird wing is, of course, another of these uh, important evolutionary innovations and so forth. So, yeah, there's uh, a number of examples, yes. Uh, do you think there can be such a thing as a, a bad innovation, a non-beneficial innovation? No, that's, that's of course, a given. Everything that becomes reproductively active is, in the end, subject to natural selection. So, uh, in the end, yes, you have to survive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, where do you think the future of research on hopeful monsters, um, the concept of hopeful monsters, or you know, innovation in early development lies? Um, how do you think uh, scientific groups in Evo Devo 
are pushing this particular theory within the field? Yeah, I think the uh, what, what you know, Ivo Divo has been um, heavily based on so-called model organisms, the zebra fish, the chicken, uh, things like that. But what we more recently see is that it branches out the the, the, the variety of organisms coming under uh, close developmental investigation is broadening. And as the variety of these organisms that are being studied is broadening, we gain more insights. And, and so uh, I think it's Evo Devo is a very, very active field today uh, and uh, will continue to thrive. But I, I sense in a little bit, I sense that there is a certain uh, division here but between population biologists, phylogeographers, etc., people who work at, at the population level exclusively. Now with the genomic data, it's, it's broadening again uh, mm-hmm. this re- in this field as well. Uh, I was just at the, at the workshop on, on species in the age of discordance, where you find that barriers, genetic barriers between species at the level of populations are much leakier than had been thought before. Now with genomic studies, that becomes ever clearer. So what mm-hmm. is a species? Uh, how do they exchange genes? What happens if they do? So there is this field of microevolutionary study, and then there is the people in the labs now with turtles and with um, sharks and whatever have you, studying the early development and, and the Hox gene cascades that regulate this early development. And the question is, how do you bring these two fields together into a new synthesis? All right. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. <laughs> That was Dr. Olivier Riepel, Curator of Evolutionary Biology at the Field Museum of Natural History. Up next, we have Dr. Nipon Patel, a Professor of Molecular Cell Biology and Integrative Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hazra. With me now is Nipam Patel a professor in the Department of Molecular Cell Biology and the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Patel, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you. Okay, so we have covered so far what are hopeful monsters, where the concept of a hopeful monster comes from, and how this concept has developed over time into modern theories in evolutionary developmental biology. So can you tell us a little bit about your own research in the field and how you've been experimenting with and essentially creating hopeful monsters in the lab? Sure. So what we do in the lab is we study the function of a particular set of genes called the homeotic or Hox genes. And these can cause, when mutated, drastic changes in the body plan. They do this in all manner of animals, but our particular research focuses on arthropods, and in particular we study a crustacean called Parhyella hyaliensis. Um, it's a bit of a mouthful, but its common name is a beach hopper. 
And it's an excellent organism for these kinds of studies because it has lots and lots of different types of limbs on it. And it's very easy to raise in the lab. And we've developed methods that are very robust for doing genetic manipulations. So what we're interested in is how the animal has unique sets of appendages on different segments. So for example, on the it has a thorax and an abdomen. And at the first thoracic segment, it has specialized legs that are used for feeding. And the next two segments have specialized legs that have claws on them for picking up food. The next two legs are legs for walking forward. And the last three thoracic legs are legs that it uses to actually jump backwards. And then on the abdomen, it has three segments for swimming with little swimming appendages. And then it has three segments with kind of anchor appendages. What we're interested in is the genetic control of those different segments, how each one is unique. And we, like I said, we study a set of genes called the HOTS or homeotic genes, which control this. So one of the ways that we study these genes is we look at how they're expressed, but more importantly, we can actually mutate these genes in our little crustacea and we create um, really radical different changes to the body plan. So for example, we can knock out a particular gene and we can change the, the swimming legs of the abdomen into the big reverse walking legs that are normally on the thorax. So this is sort of a very sort of typical or not, it, I guess the best way to think about it is this is almost the sort of flagship example of a hopeful monster. We get these uh, very radical changes in the body plan of an organism. And so we use this to try to understand the genetics of how organisms are patterned. And in addition, we use it to try to understand how evolution has created new body plants. Can you explain in more detail how exactly these hawks or homeotic genes are responsible for an organism's body plan? Right. There, there are multiple genes and they act, our research has shown that they act in a combinatorial pattern. So they have different overlapping patterns and that overlap dictates the morphology of the segment that they're expressed in. So you have to be careful not to think that a Hotch gene necessarily specifies a particular leg directly. What it does is it, it's a, it's a transcription factor that turns on and off lots of other genes. And so downstream from the Hotch genes are a multitude of genes which actually control morphology. So you should think of the Hotch genes as kind of switches. They switch one identity to the next identity to the next identity. And that type of, the actual type of limb you get, that's due to the downstream genes. It can be different between different organisms. So the same Hox gene in different animals can actually control very different types of appendages or different body segments and things like that. Those are unique to the character of that species that you're looking at. But the, I, the way to think about them is that there are these switches, they work in a combinatorial fashion, and they cause the segments, and in our case, the most obvious thing are the limbs, to be different on different segments. How can you tell which genes are Hawks genes? So they have a unique signature in their structure. So they have a domain in the protein called the homeodomain. And this is a DNA binding motif. So all the Hotch genes have a relatively well-conserved evolutionary sequence in that region. It's about 60 amino acids long. Um, in addition, the traditional, in, in most animals, the Hotch genes are actually organized into a cluster. 
So that's another hallmark of the Hox genes is that they're organized in a cluster on the chromosome, and that cluster often follows the order in which they're expressed along the body plan. So the anteriormost genes would be at one end of the cluster and the posteriormost genes at the other end, and the middle Hox genes, the ones expressed in the middle parts of the body in the middle of the cluster. So you have both that sequence similarity in the homeodomain and sometimes some flanking amino acids, and then you have that organization into a cluster. And those are the telltale hallmarks of a, of a Hox gene. Um, in some animals, the cluster is broken up, and then you only have the um, sequence similarity that you can use to tell that it's a, a Hox gene. So how do you go about mutating these Hox genes? So most recently, we've used... Um, We'll use two different techniques. One is a technique that's been around now for quite a while called RNAi or RNA interference. In that case, what we do is we synthesize a double-stranded RNA that matches the gene we want to knock down, and we can inject that double-stranded RNA into the one-cell embryo. And what will happen is is that um, that will cause a degradation of the the RNA produced for a specific Hox gene, the one that we made the double-stranded RNA match. And then uh, that will lower the levels. But more recently, we've actually turned to the CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing system, um, which is, you know, uh, basically taken, is all the rage in, in lots of systems because of it's incredibly powerful and easy to apply. So in this case, you uh, synthesize a small guide RNA, and that targets a protein called Cas9 to the gene of interest, and the and that Cas9 enzyme cuts the DNA, makes what's called a double-stranded break in the DNA. And then when the cell attempts to fix that, it often deletes or inserts a few base pairs. So if we make our cut right near the start of the protein, then we can knock the protein out of frame and have a non-functional gene. And so that's worked extremely well in Parhyala. So we can inject the guide RNA plus the Cas9 protein into a one-cell embryo. And quite frequently, we'll manage to edit both copies of the gene um, very early in development. We'll have a completely mutant animal for that particular Hox gene. And then we can look at that phenotype when the animal hatches about 10 days later. Okay, so you just described knocking out the function of pre-existing Hox genes. So my next question for you is then, how might you insert, say, a novel gene into an organism's DNA? We don't necessarily insert novel genes in what we one experiment we can do we've done at least for one of the genes is to misexpress it in the wrong place so an important feature of the hox genes is that their expression in the animal is restricted to certain sets of segments and those are the ones that they function in and so we don't actually insert novel genes in but what we can do is actually take an existing gene put in a, a copy that's regulated differently and we can control it so that it gets expressed everywhere And then we can actually look at what happens if instead of getting rid of the Hox gene, you express it inappropriately in other parts of the animal and you get a different kind of transformation of the animal. Is there a difference between the Hox genes and the so-called segmentation genes? Yes, right. So there are a set of genes that um, basically act to pattern the animal into segments. In Drosophila, there's a set of maternally acting genes and then a set of genes called gap genes and then parallel genes and segment polarity genes. And those genes are responsible for actually giving the animal segments. And we don't know exactly how that, precisely how that cascade works 
in parhyala, but we know that at the level of the, the end of that cascade, the segment polarity genes, which are genes expressed in every segment, that that's very similar between Drosophila and parhyala. So those genes actually give rise to a repeating pattern. And the Hox genes are essentially laid on top of that so that those segments actually have different identities. So without the Hox genes being there, all those segments would actually be the same. And the Hox genes actually make the segments unique from one another. So I think it's important to mention before we move on that um, all this experimentation with mutations has to correct the embryo stage of the study organism because the purpose of testing these different mutations is to figure out how they will affect the organism as it develops from an embryo to a full-grown adult. That's right. That's what we do. So most often we will inject embryos when there are one or two cells and we'll knock out the Hox gene at that stage. And then um, actually you can look earlier. So when the legs start to grow, you can often already see that they're transformed. But it becomes really obvious when they reach the end of embryogenesis and they have the full morphology of the limbs and then you can see the phenotypes. So what kind of results have you seen from your research so far? So what we've been able to do is uh, so far we've mutated seven of the nine Hox genes and we've been able to build up a fairly complete code that um, allows us to understand how each different type of appendage is patterned. Um, so we can tell you, like, these are the set of Hox genes that specify the reverse jumping legs, and these are the ones that specify the forward walking legs. This is the one that specifies the segments with the claws and so on. Um, and so we can really, we've, we've been able to gain, I think, a pretty detailed understanding of the genetic system that sets up those identities. From an evolutionary viewpoint, what we've done also then is using that information we can look at other crustaceans and we can make predictions about how you might move the Hox genes around to create that body plan. So let me give you a specific example. So in Parhyala, the abdomen has, the first three abdominal segments have little swimming legs on them. They're like feathery appendages that they use to swim with. And the last three abdominal segments have these sort of spiky looking appendages that they basically stick into the substrate to keep from being moved around by the water. If you look at something that's a related crustacean, like the crayfish, it also has six abdominal segments, but now the first five have the swimming legs on them, and the last one has the anchor leg. From our genetic work in Parhyala, we know that the key gene for distinguishing the identity of the swimming legs from the anchor legs is a Hox gene called abdominal A. So in Parhyala, it's expressed in those first three abdominal segments and not in the last three. So we predicted that what you would do in crayfish is extend abdominal A expression two segments more posterior. And what we're able to do is to actually look at a crayfish embryo, look at abdominal A expression, and show that that was true. So the experiment we would do in the laboratory to make a Parhyala body plan look more like a crayfish body plan is actually the same thing that evolution has done. So it's moved around the boundary of abdominal A. So our idea is that during the course of evolution, these Hox gene boundaries are moved around, and that's what gives you the, the variety of specializations that you see in crustaceans. So it's important to note that we don't think, though, that in, in natural evolution, that just all of a sudden one day an animal appeared with this new body plan. Instead, we imagine that mutations have occurred 
gradually. They could actually be in the regulatory elements of the Hodge gene, and they've slowly moved the expression pattern. And so that's giving you a slow transition in the, in the evolutionary record and not an immediate overnight transformation. Well, how might mutations in the Hox genes eventually lead to the development of a new species? Right, so the most likely way that we can envision it occurring is that you, over time, uh, accumulate mutations in what's called the regulatory region of the Hox gene. So for any given gene, you have the region that codes the protein, right, for the protein-coded genes, at least. You have the region that codes the protein. But then you have lots of flanking DNA whose job it is is to regulate where and when that gene is expressed. And the where and when of Hox gene expression is really critical to their function. So rarely do we think that you really have an evolution of a new species by deleting a Hox gene. Okay. Instead, what happens is that mutations accumulate in the regulatory regions, and those change the expression boundaries of the Hox genes. Those lead to morphological changes, which could lead to speciation. You have to be a little bit careful because usually there are other genes that really cause speciation patterns, uh, the, the split of a lineage or a population into two species over time. But the Hox genes are usually changes that then occur independently in those lineages to then make the two populations morphologically distinct from one another. And eventually you end up with these very separated lineages that will have different Hox gene expressions and then very different body plans. So then how many mutations would be needed to accumulate over time in order for a new species to evolve? Well, that's a great question. I mean, so for development of a new species, right, it's not, so, so you shouldn't think of Hox genes as being responsible for speciation. There are very other, there are lots of other genes that cause, for example, reproductive isolation between species. Those would lead to speciation. And the idea is that there are many genes that are involved in that process. And usually it's a, it's hundreds, thousands of mutations probably accumulating over time that really separate populations. On the other hand, if you're looking at body plan morphology changes, right, and that's something that probably occurs after speciation, so the two different lineages accumulate different mutations in the Hox gene. One of those lineages, the mutations may actually cause a shift in the Hox gene expression. But we think, again, that that takes hundreds or thousands of mutations to actually give you a very novel body plan. In theory, a single mutation could do it, but if you caused a drastic change in the body plan, that would generally be deleterious to the animal. So the idea is that there's a slow accumulation of changes. So maybe, you know, tens or hundreds of changes would actually give you a change in the body plan over evolutionary time. With your study organism, the crustacean Parhyala, uh, how many mutations would cause a change in just the body plan of an individual? So, so in theory, a single mutation could do it. Right. So in theory, you could have a, a, a mutation in a particular regulatory domain that would cause a shift by a segment or two in the Hox gene, and that would give you a clearly a changed body plan. But what we really think is that those regulatory elements accumulate small changes over time. So it may be, like I said, tens or hundreds of changes. Um, so we don't really know. It's a fantastic question, and it's one of the things that we want to do now. So we want to show that those changes in expression really are due to regulatory changes in those Hox genes. And then once we show that, we want to see if we can tease apart and see how many changes are involved. That's been done for a couple other genes in, in, uh, in insects. And the results are usually that there's quite a number of changes that have to occur over a long period of time. Would you expect to see any of the mutations you cause in the lab 
to occur naturally? So the particular mutations we make where we completely knock out the gene using, like I said, the CRISPR-Cas9 right now, we don't expect those to be the kinds of mutations that evolution would use to create new body plants. And the reason for that is simple. When we make these mutations in Parhyala, the embryos hatch, we can see the transform morphology, but then they die because the change is too drastic to the animal and it's not able to survive. So those complete lack of function mutations are not the stuff that evolution is using to create these other um, arthropod body plants. And instead what we think is that, again, it's regulatory mutations, very different from the mutations we're making, that cause very gradual and slow changes in the expression boundaries not completely eliminate the gene function, which is what we do to understand at a basic level what the gene does. All right. I want to go back to the idea of misexpression that you mentioned earlier. Can you explain misexpression in a little bit more detail? Yeah. So the Hox genes have uh, very precise expression boundaries. So, for example, I mentioned the abdominal A gene, and I said that it was expressed in the last three abdominal segments. It's also expressed in the... uh, Sorry. Its abdominal A gene is expressed in the first three abdominal segments. It's also expressed in the last three thoracic segments. So its domain goes from uh, in T6, 7, and 8, and then A1, 2, and 3. So that's its domain, a very precise boundary on both the front and the back end. And so, like I said, when we look at function, we would normally just completely knock out the gene, so we would essentially delete the protein, in which case there's no expression at all. And then what happens is is that the last three thoracic segments are normally jumping legs. They turn into forward walking legs. And the last, or the part, sorry, the first three abdominal segments are the swimming pleopods. And they, in fact, now transform into the, into the anchor legs, what are called uropods from the end of the abdomen. So you get those transformations in both directions. So the other way we could look at function would be to expand the expression of the gene. So to cause it to be expressed outside its normal domain. And then we would expect a quite different phenotype. So for example, if we were to expand abdominal A so that it was expressed in the entire abdomen, then we would expect that we would lose the anchor legs and instead get more of the swimming legs. What's the purpose of these misexpression experiments? So the, the, the way we think about it is that the purpose is twofold. So the first goal is to understand the genetic underpinning for the body plant of Parhyala. So to understand in detail the genetic input that goes into making each of these different types of limbs in each segment. So that's a very sort of development-focused goal. But then our our longer-term goal is to use that information and think about then how we could create other crustacean body plants. So once we know how we make a parhyala body plan, can we use that information to look at another crustacean and say, okay, we would predict this is how you create that crustacean body plan. Look and see if we're right in the sense that that tells us that evolution has actually made those changes by shifting around Hox genes. And so that gives us an understanding then not only of the development of an individual species, but how development has evolved give rise to the diversity of crustaceans that you see nowadays. Is misexpression the same thing as gene interference? Uh, no, so these are slightly different things. So so generally the way we use it is um, if we're talking gene interference, I think by that you might mean RNAi, which is knocking down the level of gene, or CRISPR-Cas9, which is completely eliminating the gene. We usually reserve the term misexpression for when we instead expand the expression domain of the Hox gene. So we're looking at both things, either expanding the expression domain or 
um, getting rid of the, the gene itself or getting rid of its expression domain. So misexpression is, is sort of the reverse experiment of what we normally do, which is to knock out the gene. So in order to do these experiments, I believe you need to clone genes. Uh, so how do you go about doing that? So, um, well, one of the things that we have already at our disposal is that we have sequenced the transcriptome of Parhyla, meaning that we've sequenced um, all of or, or a vast amount of the RNA that's expressed in embryos. And so from that, then we can computationally predict um, what genes there are there in the animal that are being transcribed. We also have genomic information, so we have the sequence of the genome of the animal as well now. And again, computationally, we can sort through that. We can find our Hox gene. So we can use similarity of the DNA binding sequence and use computer algorithms that fish out those matching sequences. Once we have that, then we can use a technique called PCR. So we can design oligos of DNA and we can do an amplification reaction which then gets us large large amounts of that DNA. And then we clone it into particular vectors that allow us to make the guide RNAs or to, to do things like that. And then that's how we can study the, the gene in more detail. Do you plan to apply your experimental research with crustaceans to larger or maybe more complex organisms? Well, okay, so first of all, crustaceans are actually very complex. So in terms of, of limbs, right, they have uh, far more limbs and different types of limbs than uh, than your typical vertebrate would have, for example, right? So they are. I think that it's always a uh, people should always be careful that that you know all of the extant animals now have been alive in terms of evolution, or those lineages have been um, around in evolution for all the same length of time, right? So if we think of our of a human and our parhyala. Right, and we go back to a common ancestor. Well, each lineage has been in existence for the same amount of time. So we tend to think of ourselves or vertebrates as being complex. And of course, in certain ways, our nervous system is certainly more complex than a, a crustacean nervous system. But in many ways, they have a completely different set of complexity, right? And, and that's, so we have to be careful about thinking about that. So I, I think our research is really focused on trying to understand these questions within arthropods. Where there are animals that you could say have more complicated looking body plans and less complicated looking body plans. But in reality, they're all in some way equally complex. Um, so really what we're trying to do is understand how you get differences in that complexity. How are you planning to expand on your research in the future? Right. So one of the things that we hope to do now is to understand really what the basis is for the changing expression patterns between species. So I alluded to the fact that we think that it's due to regulatory mutations, but we haven't proven that yet. So that's one of the next goals is to try to understand how the Hox genes are regulated in more detail and to then see if we can actually show that that regulation is what's evolving between species. Um, and we'd also like to jump into some of these other species. So we've started raising, um, in addition to Parhyala, we are raising cherry shrimp and isopod crustaceans, which have somewhat different body plans from Parhyala. And we hope to, based on our predictions from Parhyala, go and actually do the CRISPR-Cas9 genetic testing in those other species of crustaceans and to come back and to show that our, our theories are correct or test our hypotheses. Are all the crustaceans you're working with uh, closely related to each other? Um, well, it, you know, they're still separated probably by hundreds of millions of years, but they are 
they do belong to a group of crustaceans that are called the malacostrum crustaceans. Um, the advantage to doing that is that it's very easy to line up the segments, right? So they all have the same, those three species that I mentioned, they have the same number of thoracic and abdominal segments, but then they have different specializations in the limb. So trying to work at a sort of a moderate distance is useful to us because we know we can unambiguously line up the segments and then understand the genetic changes that are occurring between segments. If we made a really big jump to something that was radically different, like if we suddenly decided, oh, we want to look at, you know, an annelid or an earthworm or something, we'd be in such a different system that it actually becomes hard to understand the exact evolutionary link and change, uh, link of changing patterns. We would then look and we would see certain similarities, but it'd be hard to understand the differences because there'd be so many differences between them. Um, so that's what we tend to work on, on sort of what's, you know, a, a medium level of evolutionary change. So not a sort of microevolution, which is within population, but some level of macroevolutionary change, but staying close enough that we can be pretty confident that we're aligning things properly. So I also wanted to ask you what you think about the theory of hopeful monsters and where it stands in the scientific community today. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, there is certainly always the possibility that a hopeful monster would come into existence and and uh, actually uh, survive and actually have some fitness advantage and, and might uh, become fixed in the population. But I think that that's really highly unlikely. And so our own research shows that when you make these drastic changes to the body plan in one fell swoop, those animals tend to die. So, or they're, they're really at a disadvantage. So I think that it's probably extremely rare for evolution to proceed through some drastic type of hopeful monster. And instead, I think that usually um, the thought is that evolution proceeds through a slow accumulation of changes. Uh, now, the, the work we've done suggests that those changes may actually be focused on a relatively small number of genes, but nevertheless, we believe that the morphology still does evolve relatively slowly. But of course, slowly is, again, a relative term because in geologic time, those changes could look pretty fast and these genes would allow that. But really, in terms of generations, you're looking at a very large period of time to get a major morphological shift. And I think that's probably true in most cases of evolution, which doesn't mean that a hopeful monster couldn't sometimes exist and, and, and uh, survive and so on. But I think that that's unlikely to be the general way in which evolution occurs. I think that's likely to, that the idea of hopeful monsters is the way that evolution occurs is probably something that's uh, very unlikely may occur, may have occurred a couple times, but it's probably not generally the way evolution proceeds. All right, I have one last question for you. Uh, do you think you could potentially create a new species in the lab? Uh, not really. So, I mean, the things that we're creating, they're, you know, pretty, like I said, most of them are pretty drastic. We, you know, it's possible that we could do something that would cause reproductive isolation. So the appendages are also important in mating in these crustaceans. So I guess, you know, a dream experiment might be that you could create an alteration in the appendage in a very subtle way so that they couldn't mate with one another, but you might be able to create a reciprocal mutation so that, you know, some other members of the population could. But um, that's not really our goal is not really to create new viable species. Um, you know, our goal is a much more macroevolutionary um, goal of understanding basic body plan patterning. Dr. Patel, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. 
Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>